Welcome, everyone, to Asian Pacific Voices Radio, where you'll find stimulating conversations that explore diverse topics and stories that impact our communities. Hello, I'm your host, Sasha Fu. Our guest today is someone I have really enjoyed getting to learn and know about. His name is Nip Ki Lam. He is an activist and an advocate for those who have been incarcerated. He is himself someone who knows what life is like behind bars and what it's like to re-enter the world outside prison walls. His group, Asian Prison Support Committee, that's APSC, offers support, help, and hope to Asians in the correction system with programs aimed at boosting self-awareness, cultural pride, and giving assistance with jobs, housing, and legal representation. Key, as he wants us to call him, plays a central role in running the APSC Asian Prison Support Committee offices that are headquartered in Oakland. Welcome today, Key. Thanks for joining us on Asian Pacific Voices. <laughs> Thank you, Sasha, for having me on. Sure. Well, you know, you've got a fascinating story to tell. So to make things simple, let's start at the beginning. You were born in Vietnam, came here to the United States with your family. You were just four years old. Yes. And you came to California, as I recall. What was life like for your family in those early years? And how did that lead you to the wrong side of the criminal justice system? Uh, so we so we came here when I was four years old. We actually uh, got our visas from Hong Kong refugee camp to come over. Uh, I remember... On the paperwork, my you know we came to San through San Francisco, but we migrated all over the Bay Area, uh, and the reason why we we moved around so much because my parents it was a new culture for them, it was a new language for them, and so they they didn't have no history, uh, no education history, none of the stuff that you know basic citizens has, and so they did all manual labor work just to make ends meet, just to put food on the table, and also pay the rent and put clothing on our back. And, and it was, it wasn't, you know, it was at my parents was arranged marriage in Vietnam. Uh, but we fled Vietnam because of the fall of, you know, of, you know, uh, Vietnam. And so they wanted everyone out of there that wasn't, you know, in their belief of communism at that time. And so ethically we're Chinese. And so, because we're, we wasn't pure Vietnamese, they wanted us out there. And so we ha had to flee. It's not, you know, we had to give up everything we had. So we had a lot of property. We had a lot of real, we, we was really well off in Vietnam, but then we was forced out of there. Uh, along the journey, just to talk about that real quick, my parent, my parents, my mom and, and her parents got separated during the, the flight, the, the flight. My mom's parents got murdered by pirates in uh, South China Sea. And we were stranded in South China Sea for six months. Six and barely months. was able to survive. Six months in the South China Sea. And that was a struggle in the South. And we was rescued by, you know, by, we were rescued by fishermen uh, and brought to Hong Kong refugee camp. And from there, two years after the Hong Kong refugee camp, we got visas to come to America. So after growing up in the Bay Area, because that's what I knew, I always asked my parents, like, why we keep moving? And the typical answer I always got, like, mind your business. Don't worry about it. Right? And it's, it's been like that most of my life. Two years after being in America, my, my parents separated. Uh, and they separated because of many factors. One was domestic violence that in the Asian culture, we never talked about. 
it's shameful to talk about there's domestic violence in the household. We also don't talk about, you know, uh, mental health is another part that we don't talk about. Like dealing with trauma, like, you know, having a loved one get murdered or lost, and then just going through the whole process of, of fleeing, you know, escaping, you know, uh, death, persecution, in, in education camp, like no one talks about none of this trauma. So by the time you got to the United States, yeah, your family had been through so much trauma, yeah. so much suffering. You were just a little kid. How did that affect you? I isolated myself. Uh, I isolated myself first from my feelings because uh, I was I was told not to talk, not to ask answers. So I I remained very. So they taught me to be very uh, very quiet. And so, and one of the things that I did a lot as a kid, I isolated myself in my room. Like I did everything in my room. I, I ate him like when there was food, I would take my food and go in my room and just eat by myself. Everything I did as a kid was by myself. Mm-hmm. What was school like for you and how did you eventually find yourself, I guess, hanging out with this element that was engaged in crime basically? So a lot of Southeast Asian that comes to America, we lose, we lost everything that we had. So when we came to this country, we were, we went into like the low income housing, the low income poverty, and in those in those uh, areas, there's like there's like nothing. There's no resources. There's nothing. And so like I remember as a young kid, my mom took me out of school after my dad left and made me translate everything for her at the social welfare office. Everywhere we went, I had to be her translator. That was very that was very hard. We finally we end up leaving San Francisco when I was 15 years old. Uh, I had developed a family in San Francisco in that rough neighborhood uh, through violence because violence was the was the was the acceptance in that neighborhood. If you wasn't using violence as a means to fit in or solve your problem, you would be violence would be used against me, and that's why I normalized violence as young as eight years old. Uh, I was bullied often a lot uh, because of what I ate, how I look, how I talk, how I dress, because we was very poor. So I got all hand-me-downs from that we bought from Goodwill or friends and family members that gave us gave us stuff. And so I wasn't like the best dressed kid at school and kids are, could be really cruel. Yeah. I remember as young as when I was in the second grade, I got stabbed by another kid because over a kickball game because... You know, he got mad. I got mad. You know, I, you know, we pushed each other. And he ended up stabbing me with a pencil. And I still have that mark on my arm to today since second grade. Um, and so, like, I got bullied a lot. Um, and then so when we moved to Richmond, I, I grew up mo- mostly around black and Polynesians. And so when I went, I didn't really know much Asians growing up. So when I finally moved to Richmond, California, there was a... F- uh, a big diversity of Asians that I, I never, I'm like, wow, this is a lot of Asians. But not only was there Asian, but I got introduced to the gang lifestyle. Did you feel I didn't like know you what, had more of an identity around that? I did. Well, I, learning their, like some of their story, we all struggle with the same thing, right? Being like uh, 1.5 gen, second generation. Like we, we, like learning how to navigate this new culture. Sure. Right. Uh, but also like dealing with other people of colors that was also struggling because there was a wedge put against us that they was 
they kept they was told that we was taking all the jobs, all the resources, which wasn't true. We all was suffering and and had no resources, lacking resources. But that was the policy that was put on them, and then and that's the belief that they was told. They were fed that lie that we was taking all the resources, and so we got uh, we got targeted by other people of color in the community because they that's what they thought, and so instead of being victims. We joined, so we, all this young Asians, especially the boys, all came together and made made a gang. And in the in the out of desperation to protect ourselves, out of survival mode. Okay, and that leads us to the point where, at seventeen years old, you were involved in a gang related murder, homicide. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about that because that was a pivotal event that led you to you being convicted and going to prison. It was many years of trauma that led up to me joining a gang to the point where I, at 17 years old, I basically gave up my life. I quit caring about my family. I quit caring about school. I quit caring about my future. Uh, I had opportunities to play sport, to excel in sports in college because I had uh, scouts come out to watch me play football and baseball and track and field. But when I, but the trauma, I just couldn't let go of the pain. Uh, I couldn't let go of the blame. I played the blaming game a lot against my family for living in a city that had nothing, no resources. And also not only that, I blamed them for the for being bullied all my life. And and I, be, I just quit caring. I quit caring about everything where I came to the point where the gang became my, my family. So whatever they wanted me to do, I was the first one to line up to do it, to raise my hand. Uh, it was on September 30th, 1993, where my, a friend of mine, one of the, my gang friends called me up and said, hey, there's some rival gangs close to our school. Let's go fight them. And without hesitation, I like let's. I said, let's go. Uh, we didn't end up getting in a fight. We ended up in, getting in a verbal uh, argument where the police came and we actually, so we fled. Everyone fled, everybody separated. But I kept getting a, a, a page from my mom to come home. I haven't been home for like a couple of days uh, because there's so much uh, dysfunctionality in our household. Everybody think Asian pe- families got it all together. My minority myth that we all got it good. That is far from the truth. Uh, and so on the way home, I saw one of the rival gangs. And because I could tell by this, you know, in a gang last night, you could tell somebody if they're in a gang or not because they they flashed their colors. Uh, the Asian gang I was with was all Crips. And we so we all wore blue and so the Ralph gang was wearing red. And so we got in an argument, they ran, I ch- and then and I chased them and I ended up stabbing one of them to death. And like a coward, I ran away, you know. I didn't stay there, you know, to take responsibility, I ran away. I was scared. I didn't, Part of me went straight into denial mode, like this did not happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not do this. I did not. I I remember we, I went back to my my homeboy's house and I told him, I said, man, I think I just killed somebody. And we was all kids, all under the age, you know, 18 and under. And so nobody said nothing. We just all stood there in silence. Do you remember, though, what was going through your head when you realized, I think I just killed somebody? It was I didn't know what to do. Uh, I I I couldn't imagine myself doing something as as heinous as this in my life. 
No, I got into many fights growing up as a kid. That's that's all we did was fight, but never really to the point where like somebody could have lost their life. Uh, well, many chances people could lose. I could knock somebody down. They could hit the head on the ground and died. But as a, but I wasn't thinking like that as a kid. I was just thinking like, all right, we're going we're gonna to fight either them. So the, the mentality is either them or us. So either you or me. And one thing I was taught growing up was like, it's about you. It's not about the other person. Screw the other person. Forget what they're going through, right? It's no time to do that. Just focus on you and what you got to Just focus on your business. And so that's what I did. I just focused on the person and I, I, I harmed the other person. But I didn't take into account how, how that harm was going to affect the whole community. And I don't think you were understanding at that time really how the consequences would affect you personally, because yeah, that sometime later that year you were convicted as a juvenile, but tried as an well, excuse me, you were tried as an adult and sent mm-hmm. to prison at 17 years old, entering the correction system in California. I have to imagine you were, you know, scared beyond belief. Do you remember? What were your impressions when you went in to prison at such a young age? What 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 were you thinking? What were your impressions? Uh, it was straight. I was in, I was in a, a state of uh, survival mode, fear, numbness, denial was definitely one. Uh, I, I was I just put up this wall, like this is not real, like like a fan. This is a fancy. And even though like part, so like there's a, there was a separation within myself, mind, body, spirit, like everything was separated. And all, all it was is just focus on what you need to do to survive. I was scared out of my mind. I'm not going to lie. I was scared. I watched all the, the I seen and I heard about what happens in prison about being like a young person could get raped or end up uh, doing, getting harmed. And so like I was always ready. And so to my surprise, it was a lot of, when I got, came in, there was a lot of other Asians, young Asian like myself. Um, it was after the Clinton era where the super predator was put out there. And, and part of that super predator was the belief of the my minority as well. Like, you know, we're, we're because I'm Asian. So that my minority actually went against me when I went into the criminal justice system. When I was going through my trial, they're like, well, you're smart. You know, you, you should know better. Right. You have more insight than other people of colors like why didn't you just walk away but they didn't take you know even after knowing my whole story that didn't matter because they they went into the belief that i you know that my minority myth and so going through prison at 17 years old even before before i went to prison i went to i went to the whole system on this one case i went to juvenile hall youth authority county jail and then prison but there's another part of Another element to that was immigration, which we probably could talk about in a few seconds. Uh, but I remember in county jail, but no one ever talked about like somebody tried to rape me in county jail, you know. And I, I Danny ripped his whole head off because I was just trying to survive, and so I did everything I could to almost kill that guy. Where he, you know, and by me going back to normalized violence, I was able to survive county jail as a kid, which and I, I was eighteen at the time. Let me ask you a little bit about your experiences inside prison. What was prison life like for you? I know that there are uh, a lot of stories about how um, black inmates and brown inmates segregate. They have they watch out for each other. 
how large is the population of Asian prisoners? And do you all kind of hang together? How does that work in terms of your relations or interactions with other groups inside that prison? So when I came to a prison system, they asked me uh, what my, uh, so they say, there's only four cag- four nationalities in prison. There's either you're white, you're black, you're Mexican, or if you're not one of those, you're an other. So anyone else, Asian or Polynesian, fell into the other category. Other. The, yeah, the other. So that's the perpetuation of invisibility of the Southeast Asian as well as the Polynesian community, like all Asian. No matter if you're Chinese, Vietnamese, Korean, Laos, we all fall under the category as an other. So if I asked how and many... So, yeah, there's. If I asked how many prisoners of Vietnamese ancestry, you would not be able to answer. The prison system would not answer because we're all other. We're other people. Correct. That's correct. Even your Polynesian, it, you there won't. I can't tell you the answer, the number to that either because they fell under other. So like we, we know we, we get clumped into this group. So like even somebody that was uh, from Brazil would con- consider as an other. And it's so that so it's like really so you can't get so when there's no data no statistics you can't get no resources to that community, and so like that's why like when we got into prison the only way we hung out with each other Asian Pacific because they we identify each other right off right away like we asked you are you Vietnamese are you Samoan are you Tongan are you Lao and like if you are one of those things you're part of our car that's what we call it in prison you're a part of our car. And it wasn't a big car at all compared to the black, the white, and the Mexicans. Like, we was really small. But the one thing that separated us from them is that even though we were small, we would, we would show you we are not afraid no matter what. We'll do whatever it takes. We, we had to be more violent than the other groups because if we weren't as more violent as the other group, we would be the victims. So, so but the other thing that that was helpful for us like we play a really tough role in politics so like if there's two asian like there's two asian or two polynesians that will rival gang members on the street they no matter what their affiliation was on the street once they come to prison that affiliation is left outside of prison because our number is so small like you we have to support each other versus like the black gangs they segregate with, with among each other between bloods crips the key you said that um of the white, black, Latino, and uh, Asian groups, the Asians were the most violent. Did that also result in your your folks getting the most punishment, the most penalties? Uh, yeah. Uh, so when we when we when there's an issue, so one of the politics that politics that we do, if you owe a drug drug debt, you take care of that drug debt, right? Like what. And like, if you don't pay that drug debt to another race, we will take care of you. Like one of our own people will, will take care of that person. And we will also pay out the drug debt. Whereas other groups, like a black or white or Mexican, like their politic is not as, sh- well, some people will, you know, uh, hate me for this. They will, they will say like, no, our policy is more stricter than yours, right? But in my eyes, this is my own opinion. Like we play a major hard politics and run a hard line within so yourself. Self, like, you're self-policing. You're policing yourselves. You're policing very much members so. of your own group. Okay. Of course. Very, most definitely. 
I want to talk about, you've mentioned it already, about this idea of deportation. For a lot of prisoners who get out of the correction system, they go back to their home communities. I'm talking about white, black, Latinos. But for some Asian folks, it's very different because they may have served their sentence. And by the way, you had a stiff sentence. You had a 25 years to life sentence. You get out. Or other people like yourself get out, but they don't go back to their home community. They go right into the hands of immigration and they are set up for deportation. Why does that happen? Explain. So a lot of time, like myself, our family, when we came to America, we don't, we don't, we, our family always focus on what you had to do to survive, but we never talk about the past. Right. Yeah. Uh, like when I came, when I got arrested, my family didn't tell me that we were refugees uh, and so I like I grew up with the notion that I was an American. This is my home. This is where I'm from. Because I don't remember being born in Vietnam. I don't remember the the the, the journey, you know, to Hong Kong refugee and coming to America. I remember none of that. All I remember is America. And so I never even thought about that I was deportable. Like I didn't even know what immigration was at the time. So a lot, a lot of young folks that came to America, you know. They thought, you know, they had the same they had the same issues that I had, where our parents did not become uh, American citizens. But if they did become American citizens, we wouldn't have faced deportation. But so instead of going, you know, paroling from prison to our community, we was handed over to immigration custody because of our felony conviction. When we committed a felony, our our status, no matter what, legal permanent resident, is automatically stripped from us. So any anybody that's Southeast Asian that was not a citizen when they commit when they got convicted of a felony, especially an aggravated felony, is put up for automatic deportation. So their legal permanent the legal status is automatically stripped from them. And so, like even though they're you know like myself that was you know uh, eligible for parole, instead of going instead of getting parole straight out, we was handed over to immigration custody facing deportation. So what happened in your case? You were slated to be deported but so um so i was placed i was sent over to immigration uh to face deportation uh because of, there's a mou written between that uh, was established between the u.s and, and vietnam about night no 1995 anyone that came before there before that that year was deemed non-deportable by vietnam because vietnam like we don't want those people back they're considered refugee they're considered uh traitors to our country. So like, we don't want them back, but even so now, like, so because of that MOU, I was released. Okay. But other people do get caught up in this net and end up going to a country where they have no family. They can't speak the language because they grew up here. What happens to those people? So Cambodia, Philippines, China, South Korea, like Fiji, Samoa, Tonga, like there, a lot of them get deported. Like you said, and they struggle over there because people, once they know that they're, uh, they have a criminal record, they don't want to hire them. They're like, you're a felon. You know, you're a criminal. We don't want to hire you. We can't trust you. So that stigma and that labeling get placed on them automatically. Like right now, like there is so many people that got deported are just struggling to make, if they have no family, they're, they're, they either become homeless, they revert back to criminal behaviors or they get caught up, you know, in using drugs and alcohol again, just to deal with whatever the, the struggle they got. Yeah, that is a tragedy. 
Which brings us to the work of the Asian Prisoner Support Committee. Some of the work that your committee is doing is to help those folks who are under threat of being deported. Tell us about the other programs that you have launched in the last, is it what, five or six, maybe more, 10 years? Yeah. So, yeah, we've been around for like, surprisingly, uh, we've been around for 20 years. Many, some only like locally people know us, but it's only been recent that we've been doing a lot of national work, like the Vision Act, trying to to stop uh, deportation of our folks getting handed over from from prison straight to immigration. So we're like we was, we've been trying to stop that. Uh, the other things that we've been doing a lot is that we've been doing national campaigns to keep people who are facing immediate deportation home, and even people that got deported, like fighting for their their the ability to come back, which. We you know we don't get many wins, but we was able to, to bring two people back from Cambodia. Wow! To have their case reduced from a felony to misdemeanor. So like we don't like yeah. So there's thousands that got deported, but it's very few that come back. And so our goal and our mission is to keep families together, and to because keeping family together is actually building a healthy community. And also, we do you do a lot of work in the reentry area, helping prisoners who are coming out, especially, I mean, think about it. I mean, like yourself, you were gone for what, 23 years? Yes. Yeah. So I went in as a kid, came out as an adult. Yeah. Yeah. And no one, and there was no one to help me navigate the process because I don't have a birth certificate. I don't have a, a you know, a, any history of being an adult in America so like I was a juvenile coming out as adult and learning how to navigate that. And no one, you know, it was a struggle for me. I'm like, what? But I'm, I was very fortunate because I have family, I have friends and I was, you know, I have all the support. Whereas others who are coming home don't have all that. They lost all that. Some of the folks that's come, that's getting out of immigration or getting out of prison, their, their parents passed away while they was incarcerated. So what do they do then when they have no documentation? And so one, so one of my passions is to help them, you know, using my own lived experience to help them get their ID. Because without ID, you can't open up a bank account. You can't get a driver's license. You can't do nothing. A lot of the things that people take for granted are not accessible to somebody who's been in prison for a long time, yeah. especially if they're not documented yes. as a citizen. That's something to think about. Yeah. yeah. Where, where, do you, where do you think the committee is making the most difference? Wow, there's there's most there's three facets that that we're making. Reentry is definitely one of them. Our other one is our anti-deportation team or our advocacy team advocating for people's pardons and also advocating for their freedom to be reunited. The third one is actually in prison work where we we have newsletter that goes into prison and then we do a lot of that you know uh, that pre-release uh, information gathering. Uh, we're one of the only orgs in the nation that has any kind of statistic of uh, any API that is incarcerated. Wow. Be- through our newsletter. So you feel like you're making a difference. You mm-hmm. you told me that the recidivism rate is pretty low. Can you yeah. tell me a little bit more about so, that? So one of, we know is that like the first 90 day is the most crucial for somebody to re- re-offend because if they don't have that support within the first 90 day, like the, the, the rate for them to go back is really high. And so we do intensive, you know, one-on-one peer support, you know, help, you know, helping them deal with their emotions, their thought process. And because so much institutionalization is happening, trying to 
trying to help them cope with that because out here is so different compared to prison. Where in prison, you got food, you know, you food, everything's roof. You got room and board, you got everything. But out here, you have to earn all that. And so, like, helping them to deal with that, like, navigating how to use a phone. In there, we have collect phone. We just call it up, call and have our loved one accept a collect call. I hear, like, you got to learn all this stuff. You got to learn how to use the internet. You got to learn how not to get scammed. Like, I got scammed so many times and lost hundreds and thousands of dollars because I got scammed. Wow. And, you know, so, like, imagine somebody that don't have nothing and get scammed. They'd be in debt, right? They, their credit score would be horrible because one thing I realized, your credit is your identity out here in the society. Absolutely. Yeah. From a personal standpoint, Key, what makes the work fulfilling for you? I know you're helping other men and women who've been in similar situations, but what does that give to you? For me, that's my way of making amends for what I've done, uh, the harm that I caused my community. So I don't look as, as this as it is. It is exhausting work to to give your all to somebody that's going through the same. Because I understand I've been in this shoe, so much empathy for that person that's coming home, but also so much compassion, not just for them, but also helping the community heal in this in this process. For you know having to share like the folks that's coming home, part of our 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 thing pre COVID is to call community emerge events where we help our former incarcerated engage in community events. And to break the, the the stereotype and the label of what a former incarcerated person looked like. Yeah. Um. And so even now, like having them share their story, you know, by you know, in the, and teach them how to share the story is very crucial for me, right? Because I, we want them to be accountable for what they've done, but also show that they you know they're not the same person that went in all those years. I think you use the word use the word healing. Yes. In a conversation we had. Yeah. Uh, do you feel that you are doing the healing work for yourself, your community, and the families? So many families affected by this. Yeah, there's thousands. So I'm just a, I'm just a voice of thousands of other that are going through this this situation in California. That's not including the nation. You know, the numbers are hundreds of thousands that's affected in the nation, if not millions. Because in Cal- in America, there's like five billion. You know, in a, there's five billion people. So like, imagine there's millions of others that are going through the same thing like I have, right? But that are not talking about this. Well, I think There's no awareness about this. There's no million. resources for them. <laughs> We're not at 5 billion oh, yeah. quite yet, but five, well, there's a lot of people out there. Oh, sorry. Are, yeah. <laughs> that is a lot of people, yeah. right? And, and you've 5 million seen, probably. And yeah. you've seen a change in your own family, in the way your own family looks at I you. Do. Is that right? Yeah. So they really, they accept the change. So there, there's still a lot of stigma in my own family about being formerly incarcerated. Like, you know, like they're, they're, they're not open. They still, because they, there's generations of cultural upbringing that they went through where it's like, for me, it t- even after six years being home, I still haven't broke that wall. I'm, I'm, I put a dent in it, but I still haven't broke that wall. It's, you know, cause that's generations of trying to break it in, in less than six years. Like that's, you know, some, yes, it, it's a miracle if it happens, but like mine, we're still a struggle trying to ed- educate them about my work and trying to bring them out to do to see what I do. Well, it's really great to hear about the work that uh, the committee is doing. And I think a lot of people would like to learn more about how maybe they can contribute financially to the success of the organization. How do people learn more about your group? 
So you can find us on Facebook at Asian Prisoner Support. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at uh, Asian Prisoner SC and follow us on social media. And right now we, we're doing a campaign for our reentry team. So uh, the four of us that's on the reentry team are facing immediate deportation right now. Four and you can there? find it, you know, you can find that at there's four of us. So yeah, there's me, there's Maria, there's Bun, and there's PJ. But you're safe, right? You're I'm not safe per se. Like they could change like Vietnam America change could change the MU and I could be picked up at any moment. Wow. Okay. That's so kind every of day a- is is we're living we're all living in limbo. Wow, that is a chilling reality, but that's as you said, the reality for many, many people in this country right now. Yes. Um, I want to thank you, uh, Nipki Lam, who is with the Asian Prisoner Support Committee, for sharing your story, speaking so candidly and honestly about what you've been through. Thank you so much for sharing your heart and your thoughts. Thank you, Sasha. Um, as you heard from Key, uh, there is a website. And uh, we'd like to hear from you, our listeners, about suggestions for future guests or topics. And also, we would like you to check in with Asian Pacific Voices through our podcast platform and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Asian Pacific Voices Radio is produced by Asian Culture and Media Alliance, a nonprofit that empowers our Asian and Pacific Islander communities with a voice through the media arts. If you would like to support our program, please visit AsianPacificVoicesRadio.com. I am your host, Sasha Fu. Thank you so much for listening. Please join us again next week for another exciting and thought-provoking episode of Asian Pacific Voices Radio. Until then, take care.